0: This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust, promoting an open discussion about gambling-related harm and the destruction it can cause. If you're affected by anything you hear and would like to reach out,
1: visit beaconcounsellingtrust.co.uk. Let's keep talking.
0: Welcome back to Football Untold, the podcast that explores the darker side of the beautiful game. In each episode of this series, we're hearing from professional football players, past and present, who are sharing their stories of problem gambling, what that means to them, how it impacted their lives, and how they found a way through it. They're doing it here to shine a light on the issue and to encourage people who are struggling with their own problems to come forward and get support. My name is Mick. Coyle, I'll be guiding you through these conversations alongside some famous names and faces. And don't forget, you can get involved on the social media. Use the hashtag Football Untold and subscribe to the series to get every episode as soon as it is released. Clark Carlisle is still with us in the Football Untold studios. Uh, Clark's episode is still available if you want to check out episode one of Football Untold. Uh, Next up, we've got a former Wales international who enjoyed spells at Wigan, Tranmere, Coventry and Cardiff before moving into management and now scouting at his pomp. this striker was bagging a goal every other game in the championship and at the time of recording he's now heading to the premier league as part of the scouting network at burnley please welcome simon howarth Sites. it's great to see you good to see you mech uh, we've got sam wedgbury in the studio as well sam we're going to be hearing your story in a future episode of football untold thanks for being part of the program so far um hey i should ask the question first and foremost you were sent off in the championship, you were a centre-forward in the championship. Who's got the sharpest elbows? You must have come across each Clark. other, right? <laughs> Look at my face. called
2: like me t- a head and two elbows on a stick.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, we were saying earlier, I think we played against each other. Three different clubs, Clark would have been yeah. like So we'll come across each other a few
0: times, yeah. How many did you get in those games? I can't remember. That's
2: because it was non-Sci. <laughs> <it was> <laughs> well, okay, let's Google that in a minute. <laughs> um...
0: Sai, thank you for your time. Um, We're going to explore sort of your... your story of problem gambling. And let's make it absolutely clear because people listen to this. There's not one story of problem gambling and, you know, here's a template and we're all going to fit into it. So let's be absolutely honest right from the start that there might be aspects of size story that you relate to or that you find particularly interesting, but actually they might be very different to something that Clark experienced or that Sam's going to explain when he talks through his or the future episodes we've got of Football Untold. But throughout, I think it's just about having an open and honest conversation um, so that then if people do hear an aspect of it that they can relate to that they might think you know what that sounds like me that maybe there is something we can do maybe i can go and get some help and also you know people hearing this and going out and getting some support is where we really want to be yeah
3: that's what we want to deliver all our journeys are different um i think we'll touch on lots of different emotions for gambling lots of different reasons um and that's going to be the the beauty of this of this series hopefully there's lots of You know, people talking about their own journeys, different angles on it, different perspectives, and and the listeners can relate to somebody there, um, and that can raise the awareness for them to
0: to get the necessary help if needed. I think maybe sometimes when people hear about footballers gambling, they'll have heard about headlines of, you know, this sort of story, Um, and they'll presume it's gambling on football, Um, and they'll think, you know, it's about insider knowledge and all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about horse racing. As part of your conversation, um I wonder straight away that might just m- make a few people sort of shift a little bit more differently in their seats and think, "Oh, hang on a minute, I presumed it would be football related, but that's not going to be necessarily the case.
3: no, all mine was horse racing um into racing as a little boy my my granddad used to take me to the bookmaker's corner of the street when I was a toddler um 10, ten eleven years old, me and a few mates used to used to have a bet we put a Yankee on on a Saturday his dad had put it on um all all good fun at the time um. And then when I got into football as an apprentice, definitely I was running bets for the first team players down at the bookmakers next to the Indian Park pub. And I was coming back and, you know, they might win and give me a little bit of money. And after that, then I wanted to find them a winner to get their attention and for my own ego. Um, but yeah, always horse racing, never stepped in a casino, um, never bet on football, uh, just purely horse racing. Something I thought I enjoyed and I, and I could beat the system.
0: One of the things around doing football and Toll is obviously we're telling stories from a footballing point of views. And I think one of the things we really need to explore is like the culture of gambling within football. And you touched on it there. I presume you didn't rock up at Cardiff as a as a YTS lad and suddenly start, you know, a, a bookmaking little business going on. I presume there was already something already happening there uh, when, you, when you first stepped through the door.
3: Yeah, I think it was just the culture of back then. That would have been early to mid-90s as a YTS player. The, the first team players would train and go off to a snooker hall bookmakers, pub. Um, and that was kind of what we looked up to. We want we a few more quid like them. We want to drive the BMW they're doing and we want to do what they're doing after training. So it was natural that we looked at them and, and that's what we wanted to do. But that was, their, that was their social time. That was their spare time, having a beer and having a bet. Um, and because I'd always had a bit of an interest in, in racing through my granddad and my uncle and, and things like that, I just gravitated towards a few players that were doing that and quite happy to go and run their bets on for them. Um, and like I said, that, that just went further then because my my own ego was, I want to find something. And we used to play youth team games uh, on a Saturday and sometimes the first team lads would come along uh, and these lads would come along. We play playing one game and I'd got the paper that morning and thought, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to find something for these. I'm going to show them that. I know what I'm on about. Just for acceptance, validation, acceptance, just to be one of the, the, the big boys. Um, and I've run for a ball and it's a throw. And I said, I've got one for you later to one of the, to one of the players. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? You're playing and stuff. But I said, I've got one for you later. Right, tell me later. Anyway, later on, what is it you've got? So I remember the horse's name. was a horse called Young Hustler. And I think it would be, this is this is the, the madness, I suppose, of being a, a gambling addict. I, I think it was the old um, Hennessy Chase at Newbury. And it was 8 or 9 to 1. I said, I fancy that. Right, £50 each way. Big man, go and get that on. Which, with big money. I was on £27 a week. He said, I'll look after you you if you win this. So he wins, come back, pocket full of money. The game finishes. I think Cardiff won, which was great. He's come in. How do we get on? And I've got this water cash. And he's called me in the changing rooms and said, he's found a winner. And, you know, the... The adulation I got from that and the buzz I got from that and he's, I think he's given me 100 quid which is like a month's wages and then it became a thing and some weeks I was losing, some I was winning but I was starting to put five each way on myself and ten each way on myself on top of what, what he was sort of giving me and um, th- that that was kind of just the culture of, of, of mid-90s football clubs
0: i think hearing that story you can almost hear that the the, the excitement if you like the pizzazz yeah. the, you know that i've got something and it's paid off and it is this new kid and he's sort of and now that you know the first teamers are interested in him and and now he's gonna you know, he's got he's earning four times as much money that's like that's like the opening scene in the film isn't it whereby every and everything's fine and everything's gonna stay fine but there's gonna be a point where that's not fine um was was it then an ongoing thing that in a dressing room that you were always the guy who had the paper and you know picking out horses? Certainly, as I went through my career, yeah, um, I noticed the difference from
3: then. There was there was a couple of senior players who, who liked to bet. At the end of the month, as as YTS as we were then apprentices, we would go, and we'd go and get a beer, and the lads would be in the amusement or the bookmakers. I'd probably be the only one betting on horses, but from the start of that to the time I finished, totally different environment in the changing room, I think horse racing became cool didn't it the the races became massive um and i think the on you know the onset of online gambling certainly changed so by the time i'd started and i was running a couple of bets and having a little bit of a goal myself by the time i'd finished a tram it was much more of an issue in the changing room yeah
0: during that time did you find that younger lads who were coming into the train dressing room were they being sort of absorbed into that culture as well were they being brought into that too i think so and you know
3: i was indirectly this player was encouraging me to bet but it was good fun at Cardiff at the time and, and I probably did the same I can I can remember being in changing rooms and you know if I was injured I I drove the car uh, the apprentices didn't the fizzy would say right meet us up at the training ground or the gym or whatever can you take a couple of the lads that are injured I'd stop off on the way in Ladbrook's. you know the racing might start at 11 on a winter's morning so I'd throw two apprentices in the back and say, right, we're just going to nip in Ladbrokes, is £20, you two have a bet. So I was indirectly encouraging it as well, and I think there was just a bit of glamour to it for me, um, but I noticed how much that, that grew from, say, '94, 95 as an apprentice, right through to me finishing in 2006, 2007. The changing room then was full of people wanting a bet, and I
0: wasn't the only one bringing in the racing post at that stage. Um, I mentioned uh, in, in episode one the problem with a capital P. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I guess if you've done something with your grandad, and you've done something as a toddler, it's, it's absolutely normalised behaviour, right? Because it's just what you know and it's what the people around you do. Is there, is there a moment for you where you start to recognise that maybe this is a, a, something else going on here? I think for me was
3: finishing. I retired with a broken leg, so I, I never dealt with that. I thought, well, just I'll just be a regular guy and I'll find some other work. Totally unaware of how big a deal football was to me in terms of finance and the validation I got every week from scoring, etc., so it it was it was a problem, but I could fund the problem never was never in debt didn't really borrow anything because I was getting paid paid well um but when I finished then, then I had to make it I had to find something to do I couldn't nail down a job that gave me the same gave me the same buzz if you like as playing football I don't think you can ever sort of replicate that and I was lost i was lost i was de- I was depressed I was lonely I was lost I was what do I do with this and because gambling had always sort of been brimming away in the background. I think my athlete kicked in and you can do this, you can make a living from it. And, and I actively went and sought to make a living from it and tried to bet every day, go to the races at times. When online uh, betting came in and online trading, in-running, I tried everything. I've tried everything to make a living from betting post-football. Uh, I enjoyed football as a player, but it was always under control because it was funded. Um, but then I, when I had to make it to pay for the car and the house, everything that come with it, that's when the pressure really came on.
0: Was there a moment there? Was it where it was working for you? Was it was it ever you know? You talk about trying to find it as a job. Was there a bit where you are thinking, oh, actually, you know, this this might work for me?
3: Yeah, I, I remember one day I was I was at Wolverhampton uh, and I was betting in running and the highest price you can get in running is a thousand to one and I won twenty thousand pounds in forty seconds from hitting a thousand to pa- a thousand to one winner on a horse. The luck beat sort of rallied and got up and won. Um, so there was good moments and there was times where I thought I'm making this pay. Um, but you, you can beat the system. And my problem was once I couldn't, I wouldn't accept it. I had to keep finding another way. I had to find another way. And, you know, I, w- I would wake up the next day with a new idea, a new system. And I think that came from my, my football background of if I had a poor game on a Saturday, I would train that week, do something extra, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, but I would find a way. And it was, it was just that drive in me to, to be successful. And I was convinced I would beat the system. And it took a long, long time for me to realise that I wasn't. And even when I wasn't, in the end, I think I was still gambling. It it, it was that air of, I've got no responsibility. It's not my fault. And it, it was a freedom to that. It was a freedom, almost like a self-harm to that.
0: Can I share about that? So a, t- a 20 grand win, which is a huge, huge amount of money. I'm not going to say, like, what did you do with that cash? But what, did that was that something that then lasted? Did that allow you to sort of cover some like mortgage payments, car payments? Did that allow you to think, oh... This is an income now. This is we can you know we can go on a holiday. Like, was there logic to that as as an amount of cash? I think probably the worst thing is that I thought I could do that
3: daily, and it's a thousand to one for a reason. It happens probably every thousand times you do it. So, um, yeah, I would withdraw it, but it would go back out, and it you know it was just I was swimming against the tide with it, but the denial was the big. I was in denial. I thought I was good at it, and I thought I would beat there. Um, and a bad day would get brushed under the car because the next day I'd wake up again and I had, had a new idea to beat and a new idea to win. And I was just never willing to let it go, I don't think. And
0: that that was the biggest problem for me. I, I, I'm going to beat this and I'm good at it. Were you trying to, to apply, it sounds like you are trying to like apply a logic to it, that there was a system or some, there was a way that you could win because you had a history of winning and scoring goals and getting that feeling and you'd done it before and you want to get it again. Yeah, I enjoyed it, the buzz of that. And you know I would try everything, backing horses,
3: backing horses to lose, horses at different stages of races doubles tri- everything you tried to do i would try to do and i had success within that but obviously ultimately not long term um and you, you know whenever you'd look at your your p sheet and your profit and loss you, you you'd know you're losing and it would it would be inside you you need to stop but you know you, you wouldn't and there, there, there was that drive to win it back then if you were losing you'd want to win it back if you're winning you'd want more so it was a constant cycle of uh of gambling and there, there was no way to just go i know the average person in the street would go, you've, you've won, call it a day. But I, I guess that's the,
0: that's the addict. Is that the equivalent from a footballing point of view of the player who scored two goals and doesn't want to be substituted because they think there's a hat trick in it for him? Possibly, yeah. And the player that
3: doesn't score for a couple of weeks, you you don't drop me, I need to get that goal. So yeah, I guess you're still feeding that same addiction of sort. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was a massive... I never ever dealt with retiring and I thought I was in control of that and I wasn't. And I look back now... Obviously, in recovery, and I can see the differences, and I can see the triggers for for everything that came. But at the time, I am just going to go make the same money. That's what everyone does. I was completely naive to it. Um, didn't educate myself as a footballer. Whenever these things were offered, and whenever the PFA came in, we joked them out of the room, and we didn't listen. And you know, I regret a lot of that. Um, and I finished, and then I I ate into savings and things, and I just I I wanted to find something that gave me the buzz and gave me the lifestyle, and that was that was the thing that, that caught me.
0: Um, it was going to be the the career. It was going to be the new opportunity. It, there was moments where it went right, and clearly moments where it went was going wrong. What were the the clues were probably there before you were prepared to accept them. But what were the, what were the signs for you to go? Oh, this isn't this isn't working now. This plan has not worked. Like most people, being caught,
3: partner catching me uh, through a bank statement, and I think hopefully that's why we're all here to if anyone's listening can we can we stop you before it gets to where you've been caught you've got divorced you've lost your relationship you know you've got in trouble with the law or you've owed the wrong people I think that's why we're trying to raise that awareness you know we hear a lot of train wreck kind of gambling stories where it, it, it's right at the very end and um, mine was being caught and given given a bit of an ultimatum you need to you need to do it I wanted that help I just I just don't think I knew how to go about it and it's a vulnerability I I always when I was a player I had a lot of fear of playing fear of failure never wanted to be vulnerable in any situation and I got a lot of bad press for being lazy didn't care I put that down to me just tuning out and not wanting to deal with that vulnerability Um, and it was the same later on you know if I admit I'm a gambling addict I've got to really look at who I am and what I am and I don't think until the very end I was willing to do that and it's easier to deny it and, and,
0: and, and put that mask on I guess what what does a bank statement look like when someone recognises? it and goes, Sam, can I ask you about this? To the average person, it horrifies them.
3: To me, they, they were just figures, and I think that's why you know online gambling can do that to you. You know, you're loading figures that aren't there, and coming back to my granddad, you know, he had he had his pension, and he went, and when he was gone, he was gone, and he looked after that a lot more than loading figures via card and it, it was it was just too easy for me it was too easy to put money in and the same when you win if, if just under twenty thousand pounds come back in a minute it, it, it didn't touch the sides on my mentally emotionally so what you know and um that's when you know you've got a problem but it took me a long time to to accept it and it took somebody you know sort of out in me on it if you like you need you need to get help you need to look at yourself you need to get therapy and and help and and that's what I had to do but you, you've got to be willing to look at yourself and accept that I think when I speak to people who have a bit of a problem, I always say, you've got you've got to be willing to come to the table and really, you know, explore yourself and, and be honest.
0: That's one of the really interesting things that maybe people's preconceptions around gambling is that the problem is that the person can't stop putting bets on. And actually, Clark hinted at it uh, in the last episode, you touched on it there, identifying the thing or that actually the, the gambling is actually a symptom of something else. I think this is the really interesting thing that actually there might be people listening to this who are thinking... Well, I don't know what that is because they've not had chance to sort of explore that yet. They've not had an opportunity to maybe have the clues as to what that is. But you've talked about retiring now. Professional football, professional footballers, people cheering, you know, scoring goals, playing for your international country, and all that kind of stuff. But it comes to an end. It comes to a moment, and it and actually the the interesting you've highlighted that as a that was the moment that a decision was made that put you on a wrong path. Yeah, and. But that, dis- that moment happens for every single footballer, it- but it will happen in-, in different ways. It will happen for people who are leaving jobs. It will happen for people who get made redundant. There are people in society who are, who are hitting those moments at every single, you know, day, uh, if you like. Um, and I guess think- we've-, we've got to get to the bottom of that and people will get an opportunity to explore what that moment was. The thing that then put them on that pathway that meant that gambling filled a hole In their lives and gave them that sense of either purpose or control or whatever, whatever words they want to sort of add to that.
3: Yeah, I think when I've had my therapy and um, I could probably go back longer than that. I think sometimes it's several traumas, but uh, when I was nine or 10, my, my dad was really ill. I was only nine or 10 and every night we'd get, my mum would finish work, three buses to the hospital. He was in for six to eight months. He had pneumonia, lost his leg and every every day and even i was sort of exposed to them is he going to live is he not going to live can we afford to all the things that come with that kind of situation and i used to find my own way to sort of navigate through that but later on in life i seen me still acting like that nine year old boy i can see that now in recovery um but at the time i didn't and and then you know when when my dad was ill they um they said if you don't stop drinking smoking my dad drank an awful lot I, I, I guess he was an alcoholic now. I thought he was just a guy in the eighties who liked a pint. Um, you won't live to see your kids grow up and he died ten years later and I remember making my debut and he was sat in the disabled end, in a wheelchair, you know, chemotherapy, no hair and these kind of things really hurt me. Never dealt with them. Um when he passed away. No sort of support for that from the football club. Can you play Saturday? You know, he died on Wednesday kind of thing and it it's them it's them traumas that made me behave in a certain way and I think that vulnerability and that fear of failure for me went right through my playing career and I think I think that's why you know it led me to gamble eventually um bit of control bit of escapism running away from who I really am that was a big thing for me I really didn't want to know who I was uh and gambling was a way out but I, I did it as a footballer you know I I I've said you know before and I've I've always exaggerated an injury to miss a game there was there was one game I, I played for Wales in the 21s against Italy um And used to call up a few of the 21s and it was usually me, Craig Bellamy or John Oster were the the kind of leading on the 21s and Wales were playing Italy at Anfield in a qualifier um, at that time because the Millennium Stadium was being rebuilt and I got a knock on my ankle and overplayed it. I just didn't want to go. I didn't think I was good enough to go and play in that squad. I didn't want to face that the next day and you know, that kind of behaviour I think comes right back from from me being a young boy dealing with that episode with my dad and I was still doing it as a player and then I was still
0: doing it after I finished playing. I think it's uh, thanks for being so honest about that. In terms of it finding that moment or pinpointing that moment around your dad, was that was that an easy thing to do? Did you do you have to sort of like explore things in a certain way to find those moments that make sure you go, oh, actually, there's an experience I had in childhood. There's a trauma here which has instigated some behaviours. Because there might be a lot of people thinking, oh, right, do I do do I need to delve back into the past? Maybe there are things that I don't want to think about. Maybe there are things I've, I've I've pushed to the back that that I don't want to allow to, to to reemerge, But actually, you've you've obviously sort of had to explore the emotion around that experience to get a sense of maybe why your behaviours were as they were.
3: Yeah, I had to do that with the counselling and the therapy. I, I recommend anyone get some sort of therapy, even if you think you're in a good place By anything, the ability to speak and explore your past. Um, it can be simple as well, Mick. It doesn't have to be something as significant as that. But to me, as I went over the past... A lot kept coming back to this period of time as a young boy in primary school. Um, and everything that just came with, you know, that that travelling to the hospital, the things I heard and seen, and, and then the disappointment that my dad didn't change. That, that hurt me a lot, that he continued his kind of lifestyle. So I think it comes back to that. Obviously, finishing my career was part of that, but I think it goes back early. And I think my behaviour to finishing playing football and my behaviour to be naive and not facing who I am as a player getting older. Should I be doing this? It was still the nine-year-old boy who would just tune out and switch off, and um, I, I would do that in games. I've, I've done that in games. I've done that in a, you know, I, I can identify a Premier League game for Coventry where I didn't feel I belonged there um, and just acted like a nine-year-old boy for twenty-five minutes and got pulled off. Great, I've been taken off. It's Gordon Strachan's fault, not mine, and I, and I was safe in that little area. I can blame someone else. You know, I'm not vulnerable there, um, and I think that's that. That's where my gambling was, and that's where my denial of the gambling was as well. I was just, I was just a boy, I think, uh, massively in denial, and, and still not willing to really look at who I was.
0: This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust. If you'd like to reach out, visit Can actually Because obviously you're still in and around the games. You've been at sort of like at a management level, coaching level, scouting level. So you're in and around football clubs, mm. but you've obviously got the awareness now. I wanted to sort of touch on this because it's an important part of where this conversation is going to go from a football and toll point of view around. when you re- When you see behaviours in those dressing rooms now, there must be presumably in your head a big light and a big siren that goes off that goes, oh... Here, here's the thing that I was doing, or here's something, here's behaviours that I recognise. And I wonder if that siren's a really loud one. Is it something that you can deal with? Is it something you have to instantly take action upon? Is it something you have to sort of get your head around before you feel like you can say anything? What's that like now for you? It's tough. I mean, I
3: managed in non-league for six seasons up until this season where I've been helping out at Burnley. Um, and I've just seen a lot of <laughs> you know, red flags and flashing lights towards it. But... Um, I think you need people to be aware of it, and I think people need to ask you for help. Um, I have had players do that, and it's been great to support them and offer offer support in that respect. But um, it, it it's a funny thing to do. I, I think now I would really approach them, but um, at the time wasn't quite so sure. Should I? Should not I not? So it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, question to answer. Really, Mick. Um, I would like to try and pull them to one side and have a chat, but when you're in that mindset because I've been there the last thing you want is someone to pull you like that and I'm very cautious of making the situation worse I guess
0: yeah can I, can I actually don't, obviously don't mention sort of players names mm. or, or clubs or anything can you give us a sense of the sort of things that you might see within a dressing room environment that for you would be like a, a red flag is there a behaviour thing we, we talked a lot about you know the mobile phones and the pockets and all that kind of stuff is it that sort of behaviour they might recognise
3: yeah, and I, th- I think it's less of a secret now. There's obviously the phones and things, but I think lads are quite loud. It's it's glamorised, you know. The, the betting betting's quite glamorous to people. It's it's that kind of lads' attitude, you know. Have a bet and get together, and the festivals you see now, Cheltenham, and what comes around that. So it's not even like they're sneaking around; they're openly talking about how much they bet uh, and what they bet on. So you, you you know, just have a pair of ears and eyes, you can you can see most of it. Um, and yeah, it's it's difficult, and at times. I've been in changing rooms where you're sort of, you know, it's, it's one o'clock, it's one thirty time to put the phones away and I know what it's about and as soon as the game's finished people are in and they, the phones are straight out and they've drawn, they've won, this has won and so it's a lot more, you know, in your face if you're lagged than it ever was. It's, you know, the, the back of card if he was sneaking around pulling you in the tunnel, how do we get on? Now it's, I, I think there's a real glamourisation at the moment to,
0: to betting. So it's quarter to five, you come off the field and you go back into the dressing room and there's lads, you know, you get beat 3-0 or whatever, and you're prepared to there, you know, explain carefully why what went wrong. And you're saying, like, there is the phones are already out, people are checking.
3: Yeah, and it's instant. And listen, some people might be checking if their wife's been in touch or whatever, but you only have to hang around for a few minutes to hear what they're talking about to realise it's not that. It's, oh, they equalised, they got that. And, and, you know, you're listening to some of it, and you're listening to people having bets on the, the French second division and things. And I know that level of gambling, not in football, but I know you know, how important the, the five o'clock of Plumpton is to me. So I get that depth of what it is, but um, you, you hear it and see it. Um, it's not a secret anymore. Like I said, I, th- I think it's quite glamorised. Um, and I think, I think people are open to talk about it amongst themselves. And it's probably a, a big topic amongst lads having a drink or a get together these
0: days. Betting. Yeah. And of course the rules around betting on football are different uh, at certain stages beyond, beyond the, 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 the 92 and, yeah. and that side of things as, as well. Um, betting's not going to go away size so it like the gambling industry isn't going to sort of disappear and we're not here to sort of you know kibosh you know the gambling industry or, or or say that you know everything's wrong with it but there are obviously signs that you're able to recognize and the lads here in the studio are able to recognize that things that happen to them and then things that have echoes there will be generations of people who are now coming through and actually that thing of the growing up with your granddad going to the bookies mm-hmm. might be Having a mobile phone with a you know a roulette wheel on it up from the age of whatever age that it is that this is an issue which is going to be generational but it's going to be generational in slightly different ways. Well, where do, where, do, where do you begin to start that? I guess part of it is about people who have issues sharing it and having conversations like this.
3: Yeah, it's the education. I mean, if you can gamble safely and and you do it, no problem with it. It can be it can be great fun and great entertainment if you can gamble safely, I think we need to raise the, the awareness in, of what stage is that you know, I remember going to GA and reading the book and you know the lads will tell you this, the, the 20 questions they, they say if you answer sort of yes to seven of them, they're, they're, there's a compulsion to gambling, I was whizzing through them with Well, if you lose in a session, do you want to win it back? Yeah of course I do, I think we need to raise the awareness with people who do gamble, um, just to what constitutes maybe a problem gambler um, and maybe we can stop it that bit earlier or get them the help they need like I said, if if you gamble safely and control, you're under control. Brilliant, but I think there's an awful lot of people who probably don't really know what a problem gambler looks like uh, to themselves. So that's that's what we need to raise the awareness and education. You know, I'm, I'm I'm currently going out doing some lived experience talking, and I think the more people can do that, the better. Hence why we've we've set this podcast up as well.
0: Yeah, in terms of that, is it the point you mentioned? You know, the YTS getting into the first team or having interactions with the first team players? Does he need to come? At that point, so that before those interactions take place, players get a sense of what those healthy how those interactions can be healthy or potentially unhealthy for them
3: yeah you've hit the nail on the head it it's recognizing when it's healthy and when it's not healthy, what constitutes compulsion and, and, and not and I think it takes people who've been in that position or educated people to do that um, and go out and say. what what are you betting what are you doing do do these things matter you know asking them questions and saying listen i think it might be a bit more than that because there will be an awful lot of people listening here who who think they're in control of it like i did and probably the lads did and you're way down that scale and you're a lot closer to having a problem than you think you are and you may even be having a problem how many people are listening now and jeopardizing being present you know amongst their family and and friends you know are, are you at a school play checking your phone or arriving 10 minutes late watching you watching your son play on a Saturday, misses goal because you're on your phone, they are problems, and that that's you heading or if not, a problem gambler and I think people
0: don't really believe that at that stage we're uh, going to bring Clark into the conversation, Clark Carlisle interesting that I talked about f- physically talking about the opting out of games and hoping to be substituted, and actually not saying that that was because he wanted to go off and gamble, but he was associating that with a behavior mm-hmm. that was part of the story of his is gambling, you know, turning down opportunities to go and play international for What an opportunity But a behaviour which said, actually, it's better for me or it feels right for me to say no or to turn that down because within myself, I can justify it a little bit. I wonder if you recognised um, a lot of what Sai was saying there. I recognise so much about what you're saying, get
2: si, It's a privilege to hear you speak, mate. Finding resonance in someone else is such a powerful thing. And... Uh, that that whole dynamic you're talking about, mate, this is one of the greatest things that I think people need to, in general society, become aware of. Our actions and responses in, in any given situation in life, in the vast majority of circumstances, we do it on autopilot. We automatically respond in a situation. And unless we, we've actually taken the time to understand why we respond that way, invariably exactly like size story we we do something because it worked for us at one point in time and that was as a kid and then because we haven't thought about how our needs and how our situations have changed now as a 43 year old man for me I might still respond like an eight year old clerk because it worked for me back then But what worked for eight-year-old Clark does not serve me now as a man in my current situation. So understanding not just our reactions, but the reasons why we respond in the way that we do. That's how we get insight into what we respond by
0: doing. Uh, And it's, you know, that is a perfect example of it, I think it's amazing. How did that international situation play outside in terms of conversations, phone calls that you had to make? It was just an after-the-game I did it twice, by the way.
3: I hate to admit that, but I did it twice. I did it for a game. We played Switzerland as well, where I would get a knock and just felt you know, my mental health was lousy. Felt like I wasn't good enough. Didn't want to be in that situation. Didn't want to be amongst them players who were much better than me. Um, it was far easier to say I'm injured than face it. Or, as I said, when I got brought off, it's far easier to say the manager doesn't know what he's doing. It, it was a safe place for me, that. Um, they said you're fit. I'm sure you are. No, no, it's sorted. it's sore. It's not an argument you have hugely with the doctor if you say you can't, you can. You know he would he would question that because he knew it was something of nothing. Um, but I, it's just something that I've had to live with. Um, and like Clark just said, you know I'm I'm forty five, forty six next week, and I can recognise it a lot better. But at times that nine year old
0: still comes out in me. Um, I'm just much more self aware of it and the triggers of it and to deal with it. Sam, I think sometimes you're a fan as well as a player, but you know you see players. And you're thinking, oh, they, they've stunk up the place today, or what's going on there? Or they look like they're not interested. Um, I always think it's really interesting. This is why football autobiographies are so interesting as well. Where you go, oh right, I understand now. And as soon as you then hear the explanation, you completely understand. Of course, there's no element of that though, is there? In a in a in a post match report, or you know the the marks out of ten in a, in a newspaper on a, on a Sunday, they're not going to go. This guy's going through a really difficult time based on things that happened in a childhood. So football almost doesn't allow. That wider story to exist, does it? Everything's got to be absolutely justified. There's a there's an injury; he can't play because of this. He's been taken off because there's a European game that's coming up, or whatever that, that that angle is. But obviously, there's so many of these other stories that are going on.
1: Listen, footballers are human beings at the end of the day, and ninety minutes you're judged on for what six six days, seven days of the week, pretty much for ninety minutes of football. So. You can be judged any way a fancies, You can be spoken to any way a fan sees. It it It's relentless in terms of that. But everybody in terms of football, professional footballers, still have the same issues as Joe Bloggs on the street or to the person who's working in the supermarket or whatever in a normal nine-to-five job. But you can't go into the man in te- or whatever and absolutely berate him. But within football, you can do that. And it's sort of accepted... And you see it all over social media. We live in a world now where it's easier to be nasty to people and put people down and acts of kindness and this it 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 don't really exist. It's very rarely when you see it, you people are blown away by when you do something nice now and that's it's sad really. But yeah, there's there's so much goes into your, your ninety minutes of football in the week, like other issues that obviously the the fans don't see but they can judge you off ninety minutes of football. It's it's sad. But obviously they'd pay the money and that's the old cliches, isn't it we can say what you want but
3: I needed praise every day with it you know I I needed a man the the managers that got the most out of me were the ones that would put their arm on me every day but I needed it constantly and if I didn't get that and you know sometimes I'd have a poor relationship with supporters he's lazy he's this that misunderstood I I remember I'd sometimes read these things as well um, bizarrely Um, and one was just a, a full list of lazy this that should try out about it. and someone just put I think this kid just needs to be told how good he is and I thought that's the there's one there amongst 50 and you might think you know what maybe that's what he craves whether he is good or not or that's someone's opinion but I think there was just one person who thought maybe that's what it is. And, and that was it for me if if I was if I was loved every day I was fine if I didn't I, I wasn't great and I think sometimes I would go into that place of safety, which looked lazy, looked lethargic, looked uninterested. But that, that wasn't the case. That was just a, you know, as Clark said, that's me acting like a nine-year-old, probably.
0: And did that come with a moment? So, see, so you have one of those moments where you don't feel loved and you don't feel like the fans are on your side, and maybe you don't score a goal. Did that directly correlate with the, the amount that you would turn to to gambling? Could you see those moments? So, if you got a lot of love and you were doing well and people were praising you, you felt. Did you feel less need to to gamble?
3: Yeah, I think the gambling when I was playing was just. I wouldn't say it wasn't—it wasn't a problem because, like I said, I had—I had the funds, and um, it was just something there. It was—it was the post-playing where I really missed that sort of, you know, that validation and that pat on the back. I really needed that, it—you it, know—and it's—it's why I asked on the other episode to Clark about how he deals with that now. You know, I, I still want—if I walked in a room, I still want to be the best or one of the best, or I still—if I went into a football reunion as such or visited an old club I'd still want everyone to say oh it's I you did this and you did that I, it, it's difficult to deal with and shift from
0: well, what are the points that hit for you what are those are there, are there goals are there moments are there like things that certain clubs or certain fans of certain clubs say to you they go yeah I, I made an impact on you because you remember the thing I did I guess so I mean I, I was hated at Wigan
3: um, I was loved at tram um, so it, it again it depended but they took to me straight away at tram and I played my best football so it, it you know it sort of correlates with me needing to be loved and having your name sang and that's what it was like and if someone went the other way with me they probably didn't get the best out of me but um yeah i I, i'm better at dealing with that now but i think i think it doesn't leave you um you know i'm in here today and i still want people to think he's done well or he's done okay and maybe that's just a professional sportsman maybe that's the addict maybe it's a bit of both
1: What have you found hardest since stopping gambling? And obviously it fills a big void. You've got a big void now to fill. And obviously there'll be new members listening to this, hopefully, that are just early on in recovery. What have you found difficult? um,
3: I've recognised that I have to be purposeful and and, and busy. That's the thing I've recognised the most. And that's the hardest sometimes. Uh, So I'm just making sure I can do something. If I haven't got work on, if I haven't got a project like this going on, what can I do? To keep myself busy. I mean, if I'm purposeful and busy, and I feel like I'm affecting things, then I'm good. Um, so I'm just really conscious of that, I guess. Um, I wanted to stop gambling, so that's I, I don't I don't miss it, and I don't feel a need to because I really wanted to stop. But I had to, I guess, self explore myself and be really honest and speaking on things like this. That honesty is out there, now and I feel a lot more comfortable. People know. Uh, about them things I've just touched on about I, I, I was fearful of playing football. I turned them opportunities down. I gambled with compulsion and addiction and things. So I think doing all that just makes me a lot lot stronger in my recovery. What's a good day look like for Simon Howard now? Something like today, something positive where I can I can raise awareness and you know part of my recovery. i mean I'm enjoying doing some lived experience work. Me and you getting together on something like this. Um, and just, and just being purposeful when you do enter recovery and when you are in a good place with it, you just change as a human being. You know, it, Sam mentioned it, uh, to me a long time ago about everything changes. You don't, you don't just deal with the financial, you know, damage and put some stops in place. You become a better person. The exhaustion the Clark talked about every night disappears. You know, your phone can be out. There's no problem to put your phone in your pocket. Lots of things just fall off and you feel just much lighter, much better. And, um, you know, you feel much more stronger in your recovery. And I'm really enjoying giving something back as well with things like this. And I love my GA meetings. Never miss them unless unless I'm ill. Um, and I get an awful
0: lot from that. And, you know, I love mentoring a few people in there and it, it, it's all good. It's an important point to make that, actually, because sometimes people will think, I can't I can't not have this in my life and this idea that life after gambling might just be about coping with not gambling but actually we need to there needs to be a better offer on the table doesn't it that actually that life isn't just about not having gambling with you anymore it's about actually finding new things finding new sense of purpose the sort of enjoyment that you might be thinking you're getting from gambling actually comes from something else and it's ultimately something which is significantly less damaging both to yourself and the people around you and if anything can actually be really productive for you and the people around you i think you have to
3: really buy into your recovery i think if you just stop we can all put the stops in place whether that's a a gambler an alcoholic um you have to buy into it you you want to be that person you want to get involved in things like i said you don't miss your ga meetings which i never do i love going to them um all them things are helping your recovery and and you're really helping yourself um like i said initially you put all the financial blocks in place which you know your gam bands and gam stops that's great but you know Clark's mentioned it a lot if you haven't fit, if you haven't kind of looked at who you are and what's causing it 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 will just come back as such so I think you have to get the therapy self be self aware of what's took you to that place um and the gambling actually is the easiest thing to stop in a way if you if you can help yourself emotionally, the gambling's just a product of of that emotion.
2: The better if you've just hit on one of the um i think one of the loudest points. That, that came out of one of my first uh, episodes of therapy. And I said, well, well if I'm not going to gamble, not going to drink, not going to smoke, what have I got? Mm. Because it's all consuming. It's, it's as though that's all my life constitutes before that. But, you you know, you hear as a, just a, a perfect example that you, your life grows without these things because you start to look for those things that are productive for you and... Um when when you're on a, a you know, a recovery and wellness journey, invariably that filters out, doesn't it, to mm. other people. Uh, and the, uh the the sense of contribution and growth that you feel in that is incredible but a privilege to be being be, be aside yourself.
3: You get your family back, Mick, as well, it's a big thing, you know. your recovery is strong as in you you have good people around you, good partner. My two sons have been amazing with it, you know. I think that's a good thing, I guess, from from young people. They're twenty and twenty two. Been brilliant with it from the day I've told them. So you, you gain a lot more than you realise from just being open, honest, and uh, working on your recovery. I think Definitely. that's. I think that's one
0: of the things, though. That in in life, so many of us we have barriers that we put up, and partly that's sort of defensive. Well, in fact, it, mainly it's defensive, isn't it? Because you're thinking, right? The more barriers I have up, the less things can can come at me. But actually, when you start putting barriers up in front of your own family for various different reasons, mm. and people can do it they're also the the givers of the most positive things within your life. So actually although you might be protecting them from the knowledge of the thing that you're doing, I guess at the same time you're also shutting out, you know, uh, the intimacy that you, that comes with being a family because you're always thinking and guess what there's something that's really important in my life that you guys don't know anything about.
3: Yeah, your your relationship with girlfriend, fiance, wife it it, it changes unbelievably just from you from from you being in recovery and and facing things and being honest. And you you perhaps then get an idea of what they had to live with when, you, when, you, when you're when self-aware of what you were like. You you see what they were living with or what they were putting up with, if you like. So that, that's a
0: great sort of self-exploration as well in terms of relationships. Sam, so, I mean, you've, you've seen uh, sign action in a, in a dressing room environment as well. I don't know if you ever thought you'd be here X number of years on sort of talking about this. Um, but I guess to a certain extent, you're sort of both... I guess when you talk to each other, you you are now sort of um, mentors to to yourselves, if you like.
1: Yeah, um, obviously I, I speak to Simon regularly I'm glad he's sort of on his path to recovery now, and it's positive. But I think the big thing with Simon now is he actually realises how important time is, and you can't buy your time back. So we wasted a lot of time mm. when we played football. We did like I didn't study. I, uh, we, we waste a lot of our time and it's only now in recovery you see the importance of your time and no amount of money can buy that time back so now you want to be sort of you, you want to enjoy yourself like you say with relationships with your family members and, and things like that and it's testament to when we speak regular don't I mean yeah, on yeah. your way to GA meetings we have we always chatting, exchange yeah. voice notes and it's great for me to see somebody in recovery that's got positive benefits from it and it's not all easy it's not it's you have a lot of, there is some tough times and, but it's testament to it and well done Simon, brilliant.
0: What's the longest voice note he sent you, right? Because he sent me oh. like, a, he sends me like, sometimes I go, so it would be easy if you just called call me. you know who started me on voice notes, or Mick? <laughs> I got a good three <laughs> so minute, so, three minute, <laughs> just ahead of today. I could do six, sevens.
3: So oh yeah, he easy, started yeah.
1: me on. Piece of cake. I think you don't <laughs> listen to it after him, he sends a voice note back, totally <laughs> different to what I've been talking about.
3: <laughs> just one more thing, on, Mick, on the, on the recovery, I think like, Pushing yourself outside of the comfort zone. We were talking there about well, footballers not being educated, and you know, if there are any young footballers, you know, educate yourself. Take all the help you get from the PFA. And I, I'm sort of one year down in a counselling and psychotherapy degree, and it's been tough, right out of my comfort zone with everything. But again, that that's been massive in my recovery. A understanding that kind of field, but just doing things that are just a bit uncomfortable, and and making time that you wouldn't have made, would you? You know, that's the time I spend on that. I'd have been I'd have been sat gambling.
0: Uh, Sam Clark, thank you for your time. Simon Howard, thank you so so much for your time. Don't forget, uh, you can subscribe to Football Untold. You can do that now. Uh, Thank you for your shares, your downloads and your streams. You can drop your social media messages using the hashtag as well. Football Untold. My name is Mick Coyle. We've got more conversations very soon. This podcast is sponsored by NHS Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board and Beacon Counselling Trust, promoting an open discussion about gambling-related harm and the destruction it can cause. If you've been affected by anything you've heard and would like to reach out, visit beaconcounsellingtrust.co.uk. Let's keep talking.